theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning, theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Good morning, Dr. Joy. How are you? I'm doing good today. I'm excited about our topic today, one that's near and dear to my heart. We're going to talk about really higher education, which is our area of expertise, and how higher education might change in the wake of a new administration. But more specifically, we're going to talk about the diversity in higher education of those executive administrative jobs like presidents and the lack of diversity. So this is a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart, and I'm excited about our next guest. Well, Dr. Matthew Cooney does a lot of research with higher education and university leadership. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Matthew Cooney is an assistant professor in the interdisciplinary leadership doctoral INLD program at Governor State University, where he teaches doctoral seminars on leadership duties and studies and higher education administration. Prior to becoming a faculty member, Dr. Cooney worked as an administrator in academic support programs, multicultural affairs, and institutional effectiveness. He has an active research agenda studying college and university leadership and student success initiatives in higher education. His work has been published in the Journal of Research on the College Presidency, the Qualitative Report, and the Journal of Student Affairs Research and Practice, and he's presented at local, state, national, and international conferences. Welcome, Dr. Cooney. Well, thank you. I'm excited. Thanks for having me today. Good morning. Matt is my hero. He's the bomb.com. Is that even a thing now? I don't, I don't know. Iron that's... sharpens iron, though, so I'm learning from you, Joy, so it kind of works out well. <laughs> It's good to see you, Matt. I'm going to jump in with a question for you. And thank you for that article. Very, very well written. This article that you recently published, The Climb to the Top, Advice for Aspiring Black and African-American College and University Presidents. I wish that was around before I became the provost. So I thought it was done very well. And in this article, you said, the presidency needs diversification. In your personal opinion, why do you think it's important for diversification of presidency in higher education? Well, I think it comes down like one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest views that I have really is that higher education is a public good. Higher education benefits from, you know, sorry, society benefits from having like higher education in a way that is accessible to all people. 
and allows to a certain degree that social mobility, that employment, and also just kind of that liberal learning. So if higher education is a public good, I feel that the positions within higher education and people that fill them should represent the diversity within the constituent groups that it serves. For example, like with Governor State University, you know, kind of located in a unique environment where we're, we have a lot of rural students, probably white. We have a lot of students who are coming in from, you know, Southside Chicago, you know, probably African-American. But our leadership on campus didn't reflect that until recently. So I think that having that diversification of higher education, like within the presidency, allows students, faculty administrators to see the world in a different way. You know, it allows them to really think about who it is that we'll be working with when we finish our, doc- when we finish our degree programs, then also just the type of learning that could occur while that's, a, while that's actually happening. You alluded to this. Yes, GSU has its first African-American president who is also female. First of all, did you see this coming? And second of all, what was in place to allow this selection to happen? So good question. I saw it coming and I think it was necessary to be honest. I think because as much as people try to talk across differences, it's helpful when you have someone that has walked in your shoes before. You know, I think that Dr. Green provides a different perspective than what our senior leadership team has seen before in that she's bringing more diverse experiences in line with her race and aligned with her gender. So that kind of makes me happy to see. At the same time, like what I really think that Dr. Green does so well is her background. You know, so Dr. Green kind of came to Governor State University, you know, so she has experience as faculty members administrator, but also as a senior student affairs officer. So a article, a scholar actually at Governor State University, uh, Dr. Quincy Martin, he really looks at the ways that student affairs pathways So people who are kind of responsible for out-of-classroom learning really impact student success and the way that senior student affairs officers are actually ideal college presidents because they're coming in with this ethic of care. I'm sorry, they're coming with an ethic of care. They're coming in with the idea that holistic student support matters. And I think that that's really what matters for graduation success, you know, because students, you know, we could take the most, you know, the most intelligent students that is out there. But if they're not in a good place mentally, physically, and with their overall well-being, they're not going to be successful. And I think Dr. Green gets that. And Dr. Green does a great job of kind of providing that out-of-classroom support and really emphasizing the need for us to go beyond the classroom. Hey, I, I agree with that. So thank you for saying that. Because, you know, I always say you can't be what you can't see, right? And I think it's very important for those who, who come behind her and that, young women of color have the opportunity to see someone of that caliber. When I was in school, it wasn't until grad school that I even had an African-American teacher. So that wasn't something that I aspired to be when I was young. Actually, when I was selected to be provost at my former university, at the time I was dean of the education department and I was part of the search committee for the provost. So (laughs) after we had a failed search, the committee and the incoming president asked me to take the position. Well, sometimes I think they were just tired of interviewing. So that's why they asked me to take <laughs> the position. <laughs> but, you know, I accepted the position first as interim because I didn't know if I wanted to commit. And then later I accepted the position as a permanent position. And after I got into the position, I attended a summer higher education leadership program at Harvard University, which was Amazing. Great. 
it, it, it was amazing. But this was not something that was really part of my vision. And I wish it was. So what is the path of an African-American to become university president? It's a great question. The traditional path in higher education uh, to the president has kind of been through like academic affairs. So someone will start off as a faculty member, transition to like a department chair, up to a dean, to a provost, and then eventually the college presidency. You know, but there's kind of a growing line of research that is really showing that many African-American presidents are actually coming through the administrative pathways rather than through the traditional academic affairs pathways. You know, so they may be coming in from a senior student affairs officer role and a senior finance administrative role and a, you know, let's say like kind of like philanthropy and, you know, kind of institutional advancement. But when I think about that, there's two things at play there. One is what is it about the academic affairs pathway that is, what is it about the academic affairs pathway that is so challenging, not, sorry, what barriers are in place that are not allowing people to, not allowing African-Americans to move up through that academic affairs pathway. Because we could think about, you know, there's kind of this issue with African-American women and the degree of service that they're required on campus and the way that they kind of, kind of have this extra tax on some of the work they have to do. So I think that's one way that we have to interrogate about the way that we could diversify the presidency is what's going on within the associate professor ranks that's stopping people from moving up because there's institutional barriers. At the same time, how is it that African-American, African-Americans who move up to the presidency through the administrative pathways, what was that experience actually like? You know, because I think that's what we need to interrogate more is like, how can we try to make these experiences more meaningful? And what type of trainings and what type of cultural shift do we have to have with the campus community around diversity, around, uh, diversity equity, inclusion, particularly within our own academia? Because we do such a good job of thinking that only students need training. For example, we'll have all these programs and services focused on students, but what about programs and services focused on the way that we interact with our colleagues, you know, and like the way that biases come out to play, because that's directly impacting, you know, people's professional and personal aspirations. Something else I'd like to interrogate, as you said, in the article, you talk about the majority of African-American presidents who will depart from their position within a five-year period. Do you think that's by choice? Is it part of the system? Is there a lack of mentorship? What are your thoughts on that? Good question. You know, and honestly, I don't know specifically, like if it's particularly with African-Americans, I'm going to assume that it's even more, I'm going to assume that's even more, that they're kind of even more under the microscope. Because oftentimes, you know, they're uh, African-Americans in higher education, like, you know, they tend to be scrutinized more. They tend to have all eyes on them. So, um, you know, for example, a president at University of Florida, for example, there were some financial, some financial discrepancies, financial issues, you know, and they were dismissed. But then the same situations oftentimes happen with white college presidents and they get swept under the rug. You know, so I think that's, you know, kind of some that like biases come out there. You'll see like, so in higher education literature, about 2013, 2014, 2015, you'll see there was this weird shift in the literature where it goes from talking about why someone would want to be a college president to all of a sudden why college presidency isn't a smart move. It's really interesting because they talk about like, there's articles called wounding and the college president, 
talking about how people come in with all these great grandiose ideas and they leave kind of feeling just attacked and belittled. And I can't imagine, you know I mean? It's one of those things like, you know, when I think about my own career path, I'm like, I would love to be a chief of staff. I'd love to be a number two because I would not want to be in that limelight at this point in my career, but I would love to be there to kind of support and kind of help manage some of the day-to-day issues. Yes, I I can certainly attest to that. And seeing the president at my former university go through issues where there was votes of no confidence. So it's a very, very stressful position. Something you said in your article really aligns to something that Vice President Kamala Harris has said often. And I want to quote something from your article. You said, given this information, it is out of utmost importance that the presidential aspirations consider the advice of successful college and university presidents in order to improve their judgments, build confidence, and migrate potential risks of questionable decision-making that could lead to consequential long-term results that have a negative impact on their career. So it reminded me of what Harris would often quote about what her mother told her. You may be many first, but make sure that you are not the last. And so immediately as I was reading this article, I say, there it is of having that responsibility to build others, because I certainly felt that sense of imposter syndrome that I shouldn't be here. And I compensated by putting a lot of hours into my work. Mm -hmm. So do you think that we as faculty and administration have a role in making sure that our first African-American president is successful? 100%. Because I think that it's important that we remember it's like a community, you know, like that, uh, like high tides raise all ships. There's like nothing good could come of trying to tear someone down in regards to the presidency, because, you know, that's going to affect our accreditation. You know, that's going to affect public perceptions, which is in turn going to impact enrollment. You know, so I don't think that there's anything that goes into kind of trying to like tear down the presidency. But one thing that I think would really benefit the campus community would be to actually discuss with people on what the college president actually does. You know, because I think that sometimes we get so lost in our own disciplines that we don't really realize like the roles of senior administrative teams in higher education. That's why I'm so glad like Dr. Joy's on this, because you could really speak to that about the role of the provost the role of the provost being the one that oversees so many of the academic affairs units and kind of being the stay-at-home parent to a certain degree on campus. You know, because the president will be off like fundraising, meeting with government officials, meeting with donors, you know, presenting at local national conferences, really trying to raise the profile of the university. But the provost is really the one that kind of manages the day-to-day operations in tandem with the senior student affairs officer who helps oversee the outside of classroom learning and the CFO and advancement. That's really the core team. The president kind of steers the ship, but the president has it from this 30,000 foot view. Dr. what are your thoughts on it? Kind of coming in from a more of a, having that academic affairs provost background, what are your thoughts on kind of the way that we could best support presidents? Well, I definitely think that we play a huge role. And I think the faculty and administration can make or break a president because it is a very stressful position. So I think we have a responsibility to show our president in the best light, be part of that strategic planning process. So to be there, be at the table, be honest with the president 
And I think that we should be very supportive of those initiatives. And when those initiatives fall in our laps, I think we have the responsibility to push those initiatives forward. One of the things I remember mostly about my relationship with my former president, who he was great, is that disagreements always took place in private. Mm -hmm. I was always honest with him. And I always took that initiative to meet with him privately and to disagree with him privately because you want it to be where they can actually hear you. And so, so you have to get rid of the gossip. You have to get rid of sharing it. And it has to be really for the good of all. And as you said about all ships rising, we all rise. And as a result of that, so I think we do have a great responsibility of being at the table and being part of those initiatives that come forward. And I especially think it's true with like our, you know, with Governor State University, with it definitely being kind of like a regional public comprehensive university. We're a teaching-based institution. I really think it's kind of that like mission fit that we need to make sure that we have the right people at the table on all levels. For example, if you're coming into Governor State University and really trying to prioritize research above all else, I don't necessarily see that being the best institutional fit because, you know, we place such an emphasis on that teaching and service component. I mean, like Amy could speak to it, like, you know, you come, you know, from like a heavy R1 doctoral institution, then coming to Governor State, you know, we're a teaching institution. So I think sometimes we need to take pride in who we are and recognize, I think, like who we're bringing to the table and like how they really are playing well with others to a certain degree. I think you're right. It's with it being a primarily a teaching university, we need to look at what research is informing our teaching practice. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is a, a vision as well as looking at the diversity of our community and who are our stakeholders. With us being a ser- an institution that serves an Hispanic population, an African-American population, a lot of our vision aligns with other institutions that serve similarly diverse communities. But I wonder about the impact, the pressure, and maybe the tenure of an African-American president of a primarily white institution versus a minority serving institution versus an historically black college and university designation. Did you see some differences in in the pressures? You alluded to this, but could you speak more about the stresses that might fall upon an African-American president, especially a female president in comparison to other institutions? Yeah, I would definitely say, I think that public support for higher education like is really diminishing. And especially like, I think that we need to look at higher education history to really understand perhaps some of the challenge that we have now. I teach uh, organization governance in higher education. And what we really look at is that Throughout higher education history, we've been grappling with these same issues and haven't really made much progress. So, for example, you know, African-Americans, you know, first started enrolling in higher education at Cheney University, I believe in like about like 1843. We didn't start getting historically black college universities until about the 1890s. Harvard started in 1636. It's almost 200 years behind. And then if we keep looking at some of those like historical implications, HBCUs, a lot of the HBCUs in the South, you know, especially like, for example, like Florida A&M, Alabama A&M, the public large historic black college universities were founded at a time where separate but equal was okay. 
I mean, so the the HBCUs oftentimes, public HBCUs oftentimes started with such minimal endowment and, you know, minimal government support. And that continues on to this day. You know, I think that the starting line wasn't the same for all these institutions. So I imagine it's going to be a lot more challenging being in those roles now. And I think it kind of continues. Like, for example, the historic, you know, HSI designation, Hispanic Serving Institution didn't start until about, I think it's about 1972 with uh, when the Higher Education Acts. And the predominantly PBI, predominantly Black institution, and Asian American Native Pacific Islander institutions, AMPI, these are government programs that are designed to foster, foster and support institutions who serve primarily under racially underrepresented groups in higher education. But for example, those last two, AMPI and PBIs, only started in 2007. So it's like we're behind the ball on some of this stuff. And I imagine that the leaders of those institutions have significantly more challenges based on, I would say, the institutional profile with kind of support coming a lot later. But also, you know, you can't take out that societal aspect and the inherent racism, sexism, and homophobia, you know, that is a play in society. Like once someone ascends to a college presidency, it doesn't go away. It's still there and it's probably magnified. Yeah, Amy, and, and Amy, I'd like to respond to that too. I, I was never president, but as a provost, I found it to be a lot of pressure and that individuals were waiting for me to mess up. Mm -hmm. And that's how it felt. And as I said, there were things that people could have said to me, ways they could have helped, but they use any weakness to their advantage to destroy. And I was in that position for five years. And five years is a long time actually to be in a stressful position like that. And I made a decision to leave that position because I was up to like 80 hours a week and I was attending all the sports activities. And I was there in the morning when the building opened and trying to make sure things got shoveled and handling electrical problems to academic problems and new programs and just so much. And there's a lot of pressure. And I felt this urgency to try to make everyone happy so that I would be accepted. So I, I do feel that it is a lot of stress because at that same university, I was the first African-American tenured faculty. Wow. So I, I, I felt that I was carrying a lot of weight and one that I had to carry because we also had a large number of African-American students. And I just thought it was very important to show students, you know, of what they could achieve. but. I just want to stop for a minute and remind our audience that we are talking to Dr. Matthew Cooney, and we're talking about the impact of higher education in the wake of a new administration and also diversification of higher ed presidency. And on that topic, Matt, I want to transition a little bit now that we have a, the, a U.S. <laughs> new president and sources report that Biden presidency will pave the way for a dramatic shift in higher education policies, possibly making tuition free for many seeking uh, college education, wiping away debt for millions of people and paying back student loans and giving more money to HBCUs. Education is not something I heard on the list for the last four years. Mm -hmm. So it's at least good to hear those things. But you and I both have heard seemingly wonderful free tuition programs, what seem to be free tuition programs, where all the students can go to a community college for free, 
for all the residents of a certain community. And what we've learned that in the fine print, free is not free, is it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and free means 400, 800 hours of community service. It means ownership of your home for five years. It means a commitment after college or offering this community. It just means so many things. And you're offering it to people who are already qualified for a Pell Grant. It all sounds good, but it's, it's just more of a good slogan more than anything. So do you anticipate that under this new administration that the outcome will be different? And if so, I mean, what do you think that we can anticipate or what do you hope for, Matt? So I hope so. You know, I have a lot of hope. And what I appreciate about the Biden-Harris administration thus far, I'm really focused on the difference between equality and equity. So equality would be that everyone who meets these certain criteria is eligible for that free college tuition. Equity would mean that the criteria is going to be a little bit different depending on life circumstances. I really think that's where we need to be looking at. For example, like free college tuition for someone that makes $500,000 a year, that may not be the most beneficial. I mean, like, I think that we should be more concerned about the way that we distribute and allow access to higher education through some of those free programs and kind of take more of a critical perspective on it and really let research inform where we're going. Because research shows who has historically have access to higher education, who's been successful in higher education, what that demographic profile looks like. We should be using those to inform our practice. I am confident that that's going to happen, but I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. Because I think that when you start talking about free college tuition and like, you know, like free tuition and access to higher education, I think that a lot of white guilt comes into play. And a lot of the white guilt is coming from, I would say, people who are in positions of power. We're kind of stopping that. And I think that it's really going to take someone to be more upfront and say why we need to look at higher education through an equity lens rather than equality lens. Amy and I, we did a podcast on tuition debt, and it really blew my mind. And to learn that the national student debt is $1.6 trillion, that's with a T, trillion. And a lot of the debt and default belong to people of color because they just don't have the family wealth to afford college. And even when they finish college, they don't necessarily have the job where they can pay back the debt. And so if in this new administration, what, is it, what does it mean to families and students to be able to wipe away some of this debt? Before I get that, like, I love that you mentioned about, you know, the disproportionate amount between students of color and white students. And I think that one of the downfalls was in the previous administration is that they kind of wiped away some of this predatory, like this predatory behavior by some of these for-profit college universities. So there's a great book called Lower Ed that talks about the ways that African-American students are, are targeted by for-profit college universities and sometimes exploited and the way that um, they'll try to encourage them to enroll at all costs. You know, it doesn't matter what your life circumstances are, that you should be enrolling in this particular program. Take 15 credit hours, even though you're working full-time and have two kids. So there was a lot of, it's by design, honestly, that that student loan debt got that high. It didn't happen by circumstance, or sorry, by happenstance. It was by design. And that, uh, you know, the author of that book, you know, I'll send you the name, I believe Cotton's the last name, really shows how it's like, you know, these are systemic issues that need to be addressed. 
And like with student loan debt, I think that there's definitely, it's a tricky situation because wiping out that student loan debt completely, how does that impact the ways that college universities function currently in the way, like, you know, from that financial perspective, but at the same time, if we're a public good, should that be something that we allow to happen? And at the same time, it makes me think about the reallocation of resources across the United States. And that if education is something that we truly value and education is something that as a, as a society, we view that is going to be beneficial for people to attend, then we need to start looking at the ways that college universities have taken advantage of some of the financial aid programs. And for example, like there's uh, 15 to finish, which I think is great in concept, but also sometimes 15 is too much for students. Sometimes 666 is going to work out. It may take a little bit longer, but what's the point of having students enroll in 15 credits and pay for 15 credits when research shows that they may drop nine of them? Absolutely. And have to pay for it. Right, exactly. So it's like we do such a good job, I think, of like passing the buck onto kind of predatory loans. But also when we do that, we're not looking at our own institutional practices and policies that maybe allow students to take on more loan debt than they need. Like, for example, like we could look at the ways of like cost sharing in regards to books. Like how are we using open access materials? For example, like fees, why are we having online students pay for a parking fee on campus? They're not coming to campus. Those are good things to look at. I, I think that we will keep some good practices through this pandemic and be able to carry over of having paperless opportunities where students are not paying out of pocket for additional resources. So yes, yes. It was interesting too, like we're talking yesterday, part of our faculty development committee, we're talking about like the way that the shift into online higher education is really turning into kind of like this opportunity rather than new, like nuisance, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we kind of took this lens of like, oh my God, like it's flipping the world on its head. But yesterday we were talking about faculty development and the way that having more online faculty development opportunities kind of allows more people to access it throughout the day. For example, um, you know, you don't have to worry about getting childcare at that time. You know, you don't, you don't have to worry about, you know, for example, like the commute time and commute costs, you know, because you're able to access it on demand and at your own time. And I think that's something that we've kind of benefited from, I think, during the pandemic is the way that we're reimagining what higher education looks like. And I think we needed that because it's, like, you know, you get stale after a while. Like I said, from 1636, not much has really changed. Yeah. You know, so this could be I agree. Balance. We're pretty stagnant. Yeah, we move at iceberg speed. Right. Yeah. And my, so my, my dissertation advisor is a former provost, former president. And he like, he always joked that like the slowest things to move in the world are, uh, are higher education, the Catholic church, that it was just, you know, like times have changed. Like it just goes slow. And, um, you know, I let like, you know, Dr. Ken Borland, like Dr. Ken Borland, Dr. Quincy Martin, you know, they're two of my mentors and they really try to stress kind of the way to be strategic on decision-making processes. And I think that kind of comes back to some of the articles, you know, some of the mentorship aspects that we talk about in the article is that for higher education, like uh, aspiring presidents, you know, it's important that you participate in some of these important they participate in some of these like national programs for example rutgers has the center for minority serving institutions that has uh, presidency pipeline programs there's at ASCU, american association of state college universities has targeted professional development programs for underrepresented faculty who aspire into the presidency roles i think that mentorship is so key on some of these issues 
I appreciate, and I know our listeners will appreciate what you're saying about mentorship, but also what you're saying about equality versus equity. And I know having worked with you before on the Illinois Equity and Entertainment Initiative and the, the other places it permeates and kind of stretches and networks into the university and underscores our services, what would you say to the president? What's your elevator speech for pushing this initiative and others like it forward? Good question. And I'm an, I'm a data nerd at heart. And I think sometimes you got to pull out the receipts. You really have to pull out the pieces of data and show and to kind of show why this push for equality hasn't been working. This push for equity is what we should be looking towards. And at the same time, as we're pulling out those like facts and figures, those numbers, we need to actually have people in senior positions listen to student voices about their experiences. Because I think educators of student agree, we all deep inside us, we do have that kind of that pay it forward mentality. And I think that sometimes the higher that you go in the positions, the less you're able to hear those student voices. So when they actually actually hear about some of the challenges that people have on campus in regards to access to higher education, about not being able to walk in a classroom and see someone that looks like them, about the microaggressions. Like, for example, I was speaking with a student and said that any time that they're talking about February, they'll be like, oh, it's Black History Month, by the way. We're talking about in a biology class. Like, what does that mean, drawing attention to that student? I think people need to hear those stories as well in combination with some of those data pieces. Excellent. So it's the further you get up the ladder, the lower you need to keep your ear to the ground. Right. Yeah. And I'd love to hear Joy's, yeah, not Joy's perspective on that. Like, just because I think that being in that provost role, like how did you maintain kind of that student voice? Like how were you able to keep that in the center of your decision-making process? Well, I was in the middle of the students. I think what helped more than anything is actually attending those social events, attending the parties and attending all of the sports activities, eating in the lunchroom. So all of those things played a part of making myself available and accessible to students so that they could share a voice. And also listening to the things that you really don't want to hear. We had a dynamic student dean who was all in the mix of what was going on with the students. And her perspective was very different than my perspective. And I couldn't see things the way that she saw them. And so being able to respect her views and because she had, her view was really honest (laughs) and it wasn't really pretty. And, And being able to accept those things as being real because when we have this vision and this mission, sometimes we get it distorted that this is our vision and our mission and we can't tell that we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And we want to push that on people and we want to make that the reality when sometimes we're not there and being able to accept that so that we have a route to getting there. True. And I love how you mentioned kind of like the importance of kind of that being visible because I don't think that people realize like how much that matters. You know, like from my own experience, like, I grew up in Chicago, moved to Las Vegas for undergrad. When I moved there, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I took a job at the mall, thinking I was just going to work there forever. And then I ended up meeting someone on campus that offered me a job in the president's office. 
as a student worker. And that evolved into like from being in the president's office as a student worker to traveling with him to different like philanthropy events and different, for example, going to, you know, like the UNLV sports games and sitting up in the president's booth and stuff like that. And at first I was like, why am I here? But then it got to the point where like all the larger donors and all like the larger campus administrators would just, they were legitimately interested in my experiences on campus. And that's what kind of what made me like fall into kind of this research on college presidencies is because there's so much more at play than I think that people know, you know, and like having always being able to go back and thinking about what's best for students. I think in like it's particular institutional type that governor state is, I think that's what I think is really going to make the difference. That's why I'm excited about just being here because I think that as an institution, we're starting to know who we are, the students Mm -hmm. we serve and the different practices that work and the practices that we need to change in order to best serve our students. Right. You know, my son, he graduated from Lewis University in Illinois, and one of his fondest memories is running with the college president. My son was a, a, he ran track and in the morning he would go out and exercise and who was out there running with them was the college president. And that was very meaningful to him. And the college president knew his name. Right. Oh my God. See, like, that's what it gives me like goosebumps because that really is like, I think just so important, like, because it's like, you don't know how much you can make someone's day just by asking legitimately, how's your day going? And that's why, like, that's what I do miss about campus, you know, in the pandemic is like just eating lunch in the cafeteria, just because it's like to hear those student voices and to hear some of that side chatter and just to really ask like, oh, how's your classes coming along? Like students are in shock about that. And I think it really shows that like all it takes is one person to really make a difference, I think, with our students' lives. And the more that we find opportunities to do that, like from my level, you know, like from like non-tenured track faculty, untenured faculty, all the way up to like senior administration, I think that we really have opportunities to really impact students just by showing that we care. Yeah, we've talked about administration, but you've also mentioned pathways for students to be involved and have their voices heard, which is a fascinating story where you started in a student worker position in a president's office and saw those interactions and it, it fed that fire for research and learning more. Now, do you aspire, and I know you said you didn't want to be a university president, but when you aspire to be maybe that second in command, what principles do you stand on? I really think that for me, like one of the most important things is Honestly, it's keeping students in the center of the decision-making process. And I think that by doing that, legacies are going to live on a lot further. What I really enjoy about like kind of my time at Governor's State, particularly with like the doctoral program, because I think we have such a great team. We have, for example, Dr. Quincy Martin, former senior student affairs officer. Now he's helping do national searches for presidencies, for presidencies, for vice president positions. He provides such a great practical about what it's like in the day-to-day operations. And then I think I compliment him well by, you know, by looking at more of that research side. And you're really getting that like kind of theory to practice divide, that theory to practice perceived divide. But I really think it's, it's less of a divide. It's more of a bridge. And it's like, how do we cross that? And that's really what I hope to kind of contribute, I think, to the different avenues that I have on campus is just like, it's, it doesn't need to be so adversarial. We have the same end goal in mind. And the language that we speak about that end goal may be different, 
But how is it that we could kind of build those relationships in order for us to be successful as an institution, but also individually? And that's really what I try to do. PhDs in higher education administration, spent 10 years in administration before becoming faculty member. So it's like, I can't, I can't help but know, like, I can't try to take that out of my mind about how hard there are people working on campus that are working towards the same goals we are. They just may be working on those goals outside, of, outside the classroom rather than inside the classroom. So it's about relationships. And I think that's something that regardless of position I end up in, I hope I kind of keep that moving forward is being able to work with people across division administrative lines and also kind of having that social perspective taking as well and understanding like what it is that they're bringing to the table just based on their own background, personal experiences. It's been fascinating talking to you today. Matthew Cooney has shared a number of ideas and research background on what he's working on with university presidents. And thank you for joining us today. And we appreciate your- Yes, yes, yes. I'm looking forward to all the things that you're going to do, Matt. And we're looking forward to having you again, maybe some more student focus conversations. We want to talk about, I mean, we have huge problems like this teacher shortage. Oh my God, yes. What's our role? as a university? What's the president's role in addressing something like our teacher shortage and things like that? So we're so looking forward to talking to you again. It's been amazing to spend this time with you. No, likewise. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. And definitely, um, I don't know, like, I think we're all in this together and that's what matters. That's why I appreciate about having colleagues like you all is that (laughs) we, you know, I mean, like we just, I don't know. I, like I said, like iron sharpens iron. So just thank you so much for all that you guys do. So definitely look forward to chatting again. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning, Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you. Our listeners, did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.